This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors in the financial industry. Outer Blue by Amundi. Welcome to Blue Research. Knowledge sharing on financial research. Hello and thank you for joining us for this Amundi Blue Research podcast. Now throughout the course of this crisis, central banks have been proactive, reintroducing large-scale asset purchase programs financed by money creation. What we have seen during this pandemic is a spectacular change in economic policy. In the space of just a few months, fiscal and monetary policies have become intertwined. And this is probably not reversible. Whilst governments have become the buyers of last resort, central banks are playing their role as the lenders of last resort. But just how far can they go? Well, to answer that question, I'm joined now by Didier Borovsky, who is the head of Global Views, who's going to be giving us some analysis on the behaviour of central banks. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, Didier. Could you briefly sum up for us uh, what were the key measures and attitudes of central banks around the world during the crisis? Uh, Central banks have been quite proactive in this crisis. They have uh, first uh, lowered their interest rates when it was possible. Uh, They have uh, reintroduced large-scale asset purchase programs uh, financed by uh, by money creation, what we call QE uh, quantitative easing policies, QE policies, and they have also um, committed themselves to increase their balance sheet at a pace uh, not seen before. And uh, so, what we've seen in the start of the crisis is the most proactive central bank reaction ever seen. Even more proactive, I would say. Then after the great financial crisis, because after the great financial crisis, as you probably know, you saw a very quick reaction from the Federal Reserve or the Bank of England, but it took time for the, for the ECB because it had not the proper tool to, uh, to, uh, to react. So there was, on the one hand, everything related to liquidity. And I think that, that's, uh, that's a consensus. Central banks had to adopt uh, measures in order to maintain liquidity in the system and it was done uh, very quickly. But regarding asset purchase programs, uh, they have been renewed much more uh, uh, and put in place much more rapidly than after the, the, the great financial crisis. So why is it that you think that central banks are more flexible than governments? Well, CBs, uh, central banks are by nature, in fact, much more flexible than governments. Uh, uh, insofar as uh, parliaments are not involved in the in the decision making approach, um, the time for fiscal and budgetary policy cannot be the same. Uh, budgetary programs, for instance, must must be voted by parliaments, and uh, this is the case, for instance, in the United States, and takes time. In the eurozone, uh, uh, the slow pace of change is due to the fact that the eurozone is not uh, a, a complete monetary union in the sense that. States were forced to respond first on a country-by-country basis, and so at the end of the day, you have a, you had the kind of uh, uh, disorderly reaction on the fiscal side. And this, in order to combat the, 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 the financial fragmentation that appears uh, in this crisis, central banks have a key role to play. And uh, what we can say is that. Uh, Central banks have fully fulfilled their role, but uh, something which is very important to understand is that unlike 
what happened, for instance, in the Eurozone during the sovereign debt crisis, uh, governments have also reacted. Uh, even if it's more slowly and in a disorderly manner, uh, fiscal policy um, has become an essential component of the authorities' response to this crisis. And that's true on the both sides of the Atlantic. So my point is that monetary policy is no longer the only game in town. You have a, a policy mix, which at the end of the day has been quite proactive. Central banks came first because by nature, by essence, they are much more proactive. But fiscal policies uh, uh, also play a key role in this, uh, uh, in this crisis with uh, very contracyclical uh, policy, uh, policy measures. Um, and, and the important point is that given the reaction after from the government, central banks had to uh, uh, increase uh, the level of their QE programs um, and arguing that, in fact, circumstances were exceptional. Um, they have not only committed themselves to, to increase their balance sheet at a pace uh, that was not uh, uh, seen before, but they have also crossed new limits. And for instance, you see that uh, in the United States, uh, the Fed decided to, uh, to, to buy fallen angels. And that's something that uh, the Fed had never done. Uh, in, uh, in the Eurozone, um, the ECB has decided to deviate quite substantially from uh, any rule of proportionality. You know that the ECB in theory should respect uh, the capital key, the share of each national central bank in the capital of the ECB. And, in, and there's a new program, which is called the PEPP. In fact, uh, uh, it, has, uh, uh, it has not respected, the ECB has not respected, in fact, uh, uh, the capital key. And uh, so they have crossed new limits. And I would say both governments, by, uh, by uh, the amounts that were put on the table and central banks, which uh, are accompanying, in fact, uh, governments uh, are, uh, have implemented so far uh, a, a, next, a very contracyclical uh, 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 fiscal and monetary policy uh, that, uh, that, uh, that wasn't seen in history. And could you please tell us a bit more about the different forms of quantitative easing? So in fact, you have different kinds, indeed, of uh, quantitative easing. It's important to, to understand that uh, the impact of central bank policies on the balance sheet uh, uh, is not uh, uh, exactly the same depending on the kind of QE uh, that you are looking at. So, for instance, the QE that uh, all investors have well in mind is uh, uh, when a, a central bank implements a large-scale asset purchase program. And so in the, uh, the, the first kind of QE that investors have in mind is a, a QE on a government bonds. And for instance, uh, the government under such a program purchases uh, uh, assets, which are government bonds. And uh, on the other hand, uh, so the, 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 the assets are on the asset side of the central bank and uh, the government uh, has uh, uh, the debt uh, is shown on the liability side. So uh, you have an impact on the on the balance sheet on both the asset and the liability side. Uh, central banks can also purchase in the same vein uh, um, private assets, and most of the time 
uh, it's, uh, uh, it's corporate bonds, they buy corporate bonds. But in that case, we can present, in fact, this QE as a kind of fiscal QE. And it is often characterized as a, as a fiscal QE because um, uh, logically it can be broken down uh, in two different operations, a QE on government debt and a parallel issuance of government debt security to buy private assets. And I, uh, 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 this time of QE, uh, uh, I think I, I like this expression of fiscal QE because it illustrates the extent to which the central bank uh, takes on a fiscal role with the QE. So when uh, when the central bank uh, uh, implements a QE, uh, the border between uh, uh, monetary and fiscal policy is blurred, and um, and 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 in fact. Uh, uh, central banks will na naturally continue to say that their policy is aimed at, at meeting their inflation target. But uh, make no mistake about it. Uh, at the end of the day, we have entered into a, a regime of fiscal dominance where the objective of central banks is not only uh, uh, to uh, uh, maintain price stability, but is also to ensure financial stability and in particular the, the sustainability of debts. Uh, uh, that are constantly, in fact, increasing with each new crisis. And sustainability is, techni is technically assured, in fact, when the average nominal interest rate paid on debt is below nominal GDP growth, because it helps to contain uh, the interest rates, uh, the interest uh, charges of debt. So, uh, uh, with QE policies, uh, it is clearly the DNA of central banks that has changed they are, uh, in fact, they are taking on a, a fiscal role. And that's important uh, to understand. You have also another kind of QE, which is um, very different regarding its impact on uh, uh, the central bank balance sheet. It's what is called sometimes helicopter money. When, uh, in fact, the central banks uh, 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 tries to support directly aggregate demand. Uh, uh, by, uh, for instance, uh, doing checks to, to households or uh, something like that. And in theory, helicopter money is equivalent to a fiscal stimulus uh, that is financed by, uh, by the central bank. But uh, at the end of the day, if uh, the central banks directly transfer uh, money to private agents, uh, uh, the increase, in fact, the transfer becomes permanent and the impact on the balance sheet is not at all the same. So in theory, what is called the helicopter money should be seen as a kind of QE, but it has very different consequences on the central bank balance sheet. Um, in theory, uh, you would have uh, uh, the central bank would fall in negative e equity and the central bank should be recapitalized. But we know uh, from history that central banks can, in fact, continue to operate even when they fall in negative equity. And my point is that in that case, you have um, more demand at the end of the day, but you have no, uh, 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 you have no increase in public debt. So fiscal, uh, fiscal uh, metrics, the debt to GDP ratio, the, the, the fiscal deficit remain unchanged. And you have uh, a supplement uh, in aggregate demand. So, uh, so it's a very different kind of uh, QE that may pose some uh, legal uh, problems because uh, can be perceived as a kind of uh, uh, debt monetization. 
And you have all the kind of QEs from time to time. I mean, it depends, but the yield curve control may, may be also a kind of QE policy. We know, for instance, that uh, the Federal Reserve is uh, looking at this possibility these days. Uh, it's not necessarily a QE policy. Most of the time, I mean, it is. It means that the, the, the central banks, in fact, aims under the yield curve control regime to uh, control a segment of the yield curve, or most often uh, uh, the 10-year yield. And uh, to do so, the central banks implicitly commit itself to purchase the amounts of government bonds that is needed to, to achieve its objective. And if the central bank is credible, uh, bond yields tend to move uh, close to their, uh, to their target. And it's a form of QE, but with very different modalities, because bond purchases uh, adjust to bond yields and not the other way around. Uh, that's, uh, that's another, and it's not necessarily a QE, but at the end of the day, uh, you can imagine some, uh, some situation in which uh, the central bank's balance sheet could in fact decrease over time. So as you can see, um, the active management of the balance sheet uh, for central banks uh, covers a wide range of possibilities, among which uh, the, 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 the traditional QE, a direct purchase of government bonds, what, what, what we can call a fiscal QE, when the central banks buy uh, corporate bonds. Or you may have also, with very different consequences, the pure helicopter money. Or, in other circumstances, you may have also uh, uh, the yield curve control, which from time to time may, 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 may also be a kind of a, a QE, a QE policy. So would you say there's now a conflict between government's objectives and the mandates of central banks? And what are the potential consequences of QE policies? So at this stage, I would say there is no conflict because uh, the crisis uh, in which we are, we have in the short run, in the coming two years, I would say more disinflationary consequences than inflationary consequences. So uh, central banks can continue the foreseeable future to uh, uh, um, to operate with their uh, QE parties without putting at risk inflation. Having said that, we understand that when uh, fiscal and monetary policies become completely intertwined, there is no easy exit strategy. And at some point, if inflation resurfaces, uh, you would have a kind of conflict of objectives because the major objective of uh, the government to put it in a in a nutshell is to uh, you know to to obtain a, a cyclical stabilization to ensure the, the public debt sustainability while the primary objective of central banks is to maintain uh, price stability and uh, if you have a conflict uh, between uh, uh, the two objectives uh, the operational independence of central banks could be at some point in jeopardy um, we believe that this risk is much more pronounced in the United States because the Fed operates under close congressional oversight than it is in the Eurozone, uh, where the ECB's independence is enshrined in an international treaty. Uh, but we have to bear in mind that uh, the operational independence of central banks uh, is pretty recent. In fact, uh, central banks have become independent uh, 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 since the early uh, 80s. Uh, and, uh, and at some point, uh, that's something if you have a conflicting objective that could be at risk in the, in the medium run, and that's, uh, that's what we are going to monitor. Something important to mention is that central banks have some room 
from Hanover, they will probably revise their uh, strategic uh, approach. And I mean by that, that uh, their uh, inflation target will probably in the future be a symmetrical inflation target. What does it mean in practice? Uh, as you probably know, inflation has remained below central bank target on average since the great financial crisis. And if they adopt a symmetric target, it means in practice that they can allow inflation to move above their target for a while, uh, because they would target, in fact, uh, 2% on average over a cycle, meaning that uh, you can have uh, uh, inflation going above the central bank's target without putting at risk uh, in, uh, uh, inflation, uh, inflation stability, with, without de-anchoring inflation expectations. The, the, the threat on uh, central bank's independence is not uh, um, immediate. Uh, it's something that uh, has to be taken into account for uh, in the medium run. Uh, but in the coming uh, in the coming two years, we we really believe that there is no conflict in objectives between what central banks aim to do and what governments want to do. They both their policies go in the same direction, uh, uh, macro uh, to 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 to. to to have some macro stability. And on the subject of regulation, would you say that unconventional monetary policies call for more regulation or not? Probably for more regulation. The fact is that um, central banks' uh, unconventional monetary policies, in fact, these policies have become quite conventional since uh, the great financial crisis, we know that they may... Um, encourage investors to hunt for yields. Uh, and in that case, they can uh, be at the origin of uh, asset price bubbles. So it's very difficult, in fact, to detect uh, a bubble exactly. Uh, you never know when asset prices are uh, rising uh, if uh, uh, it is uh, um, uh, an inflection in the trend or a one-step adjustment in the equilibrium level, uh, or the start of a bubble. And that's, uh, I would say, uh, uh, a risk that we have to, to bear in mind. If you take, for instance, very recently, since uh, late May, early June, um, equities have performed quite well. And despite the fact that the outlook is very deteriorated, at least for 2020, for this year, and uh, it seems that you have a disconnection between fundamentals and asset prices, in particular equity uh, equity market. So is that fueled by uh, what central banks are doing? Probably to some extent, because uh, central banks, with their policies, um, uh, maintain and will maintain low bond yield for an extended period of time. Investors understand that bond yields are not likely to uh, increase anytime soon. And uh, it's all about greed, you know, in these conditions. And in that case, it makes sense for regulators to, 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 to keep in mind the fact that uh, at some point you may have uh, a new, new bubbles. It's very complex to know if you, uh, how you should deal with that. But uh, probably with a mix of macroprudential policies and fiscal policies. If you take the example, for instance, of uh, what's going on on the property market, uh, um, the route, if, 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 if uh, 
property prices continue to increase uh, uh, following what central banks are doing, you have to look at very carefully to, 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 to identify the root, in fact, of uh, the imbalance. It might be due to, due to some uh, sectoral features to the tax regime or to the fact that it's uh, too easy for uh, uh, households uh, to leverage themselves. So uh, probably more interventions uh, are required through macroprudential tools, but also probably uh, the authorities have to monitor uh, very carefully what they are doing uh, on a sectoral basis, for instance, on the property market, or uh, uh, look also at uh, some fiscal tools in order to avoid uh, the emergence of uh, uh, a new a new bubble. And I was thinking about the the property uh, the property market, but you can think about also some interventions in order to maintain macro financial stability. So to some extent, I would say yes, if we want to avoid uh, 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 outright bubbles. That could put at risk that would put at risk in the medium term macro financial stability. Uh, uh, regulation policies are probably uh, needed uh, in this environment. Okay, well, thank you so much for that, Didier. And just by way of a conclusion, uh, since we're talking to investors, um, as far as they're concerned, what key elements uh, have to be monitored with regard to central banks' behaviour? Well, uh, we have to monitor first. I would say. Uh, inflation expectation. We believe that, uh, as, I, as I told you, we don't expect inflation to rise anytime soon in the short run. You have more uh, disinflationary uh, consequences than inflationary consequences, I would say, at the 12 to 18 months horizon. Having said that, market inflation expectations are excessively low. And in the medium term, if you agree with the fact that uh, the mix uh, of ex- an expansionist fiscal policy and a very expansionist monetary policy will uh, manage to stabilize the situation. At the end of the day, you should see more inflation than uh, what we currently see. And, uh, and uh, so we believe, and that's the first consequence, that inflation-linked bonds uh, are still attractive uh, in this uh, environment in a medium-term perspective. Market inflation expectations are too low, even if you don't believe that inflation will uh, jump anytime soon. At some point, it's rational to expect that inflation will evolve above central bank's target. And that's something that is not at all priced in market. The second point is to understand is that uh, when central banks commit themselves to maintain low bond yields for an extended period of time, it will continue to encourage investors to hunt for yield. And some investors, and in particular households, may want to diversify more their assets away from government bonds. So it clearly paves the way for more asset price inflation. Whether it's a, a regime shift with higher equilibrium prices or the, 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 the beginning of uh, 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 an asset uh, price bubble is a, is a, is a name, next something. Uh, but uh, we, uh, we would expect, uh, uh, to some extent, I would say, uh, uh, some uh, market segments to benefit 
from uh, uh, Cuban policies, uh, it's also more true that at some point, uh, uh, these policies will uh, manage to reflate the economy. You will see also, and that's an important point for international investors, more volatility uh, uh, on currency markets, on the forex market. And the reason why is quite simple to, uh, in fact, to understand. You will see very low volatility when it comes to interest rates because central banks will manage interest rates for a while. And the only shock absorber, the only way to absorb cyclical divergences between economies will be through uh, uh, exchange rate moves. So, um, in, again, this backdrop, uh, it's likely that we will see more volatility on, uh, on currencies. Uh, than uh, we uh, used to see. Another point that is probably important is that all what we have mentioned regarding, you know, these new policy links and the fact that central banks have entered in a new regime with uh, uh, very aggressive QE policies, that's not true everywhere. That's true most of the time um, for the major advanced economies. Many emerging uh, countries cannot afford that kind of policy because it would put at risk their, their currency. They are not uh, uh, not credible to, uh, to implement that kind of policy. But at the end of the day, we believe that emerging countries will uh, benefit from the policies that are implemented in the most advanced economies. Because at the end of the day, these economies will continue to benefit from higher nominal potential growth, they will continue to offer higher bond yields and many currencies, emerging currencies, have depreciated below their uh, equilibrium, equilibrium level. So at some point in time, uh, investors in advanced economies will want to increase the return on their portfolios, will probably re-enter into uh, emerging markets to, in to increase, in fact, uh, the rate uh, of return of their uh, of their portfolio, and there is a, a, a final question, which is more an open question for investors. As I said, we, you never know if um, when risky assets rise, if it's uh, and if it does not seem exempt related to fundamentals, you never know if it's the beginning of a bubble, of or a shift in the equilibrium price. Something that uh, that we should be, have in mind is that this this cycle, this macro financial cycle, is unique. Uh, this is the first time in history that central banks will maintain low bond yields for a very long period of time. Uh, so we have entered in a kind, in a world of uh, it's a kind of financial repression regime, in which uh, if uh, the discount rate remains low for a, a, a sustainable period, for an extended period of time, in theory it may increase the equilibrium value of risky assets. And so that's my point: is that the first. Uh, the first impact of these policies is clearly asset price inflation. And to some extent, some of this inflation might be uh, 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 a rise in the equilibrium uh, price of, uh, of risky assets. To some extent. To some extent. But this, this question remains, uh, remains open. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed. That's all we have time for. Uh, Didier Borowski, the head of Global Views, thank you so much. And thank you to you for listening. I do hope you'll join us again very soon for another Blue Research podcast.
This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors as defined in Directive 2004-39-EC, dated 21st of April 2004, on markets in financial instruments called MIFID, investment services providers, and any other professional of the financial industry. Views are subject to change and should not be relied upon as investment advice on behalf of Amundi.